hopefully by God's grace, I'll have enough <coughs> voice to get through. That's our prayer at least. Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians. So we're in the New Testament, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, keep going. If you have no idea where it is, feel free to use the table of contents. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. So we'd love for you to have that open and remain open as we're just going to kind of go through it this morning together. And as, as you're opening up there, let me just ask you a question. What is bringing joy, thankfulness, or gratitude in your heart and in your life right now? It's a good time of year to kind of ask that question. What is it that is bringing you joy and gratitude and thankfulness? Uh, as you know, we've been looking for the past couple of weeks at this topic of the grace-shaped life. And we're going to finish that little three-part mini-series this morning. And as we enter into the Advent season next Sunday, we're going to look at the, we're going to kind of pick apart the Christmas hymn, Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People. And we're going to use that to kind of hang our Advent series on. And we're going to finish up this morning. And as you know, we've been using questions one and two of the Heidelberg Catechism to kind of hang this little mini series on. And those questions and answers are listed on the front of your bulletin. Or question one asks, What is your only comfort in life and death? And it says that our only comfort and trust is knowing that we fully belong to and are united to Jesus Christ as our Savior. And it talks about, it goes on and says that not a, not a hair can fall from my head without it being the will of my Father. And grateful for that. And the second question is, so if that is your only joy and comfort in this life, well, what do we need to know to fully enjoy and rest in that comfort? And it says we need to know three things to enjoy that comfort in this life. Number one, how great our sin and misery is, our guilt. We need to know that and, and, and understand that. The second thing we need to know is how we have been delivered from all of our sin and misery. That's grace. We looked at that last week. And then finally, how we respond to God for that deliverance. That's gratitude. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So guilt, grace, and gratitude. We need to know those three things. And on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, this is a, a timely reminder for us all. And so by way of illustration, if you're a Christian, I'd like to just list off a few of the things that God has done to rescue you. And if you'd like, I'd invite you to say thanks be to God after each and every one of them. And we're just going to, I think the best illustration for this is just what God has done. And um, now you ask the question, why would we do this? Because we forget the lengths to which God went for his people and dwelling upon what he has done helps us respond with a life of gratitude. We focus on the Lord. And we've said before, as our theology deepens, as our understanding of God and our salvation and who he is, as our theology deepens, our doxology deepens, our praise, our thanksgiving to the Lord and I've said before that the gospel follows a formula, and it is the indicative drives the imperative. So the indicative, which is a statement of fact, drives the imperative, which is a command. And if you get this mixed up, you'll miss out on the beauty of the gospel of grace and think that your salvation hinges upon your performance. And here's what Tim Keller said. Any effort to take away the idea of Christ's substitutionary atonement and replace it with moralism, i.e. being moral, working for others, imitating Jesus, robs the gospel of its power to change us from the inside out. The gospel is therefore radically different from religion. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted. 
The gospel operates on the principle, I am accepted through Christ already, therefore I obey. You know, the statement of fact that we then respond to. It's not, God will bless you if you obey. It is, God already has blessed you in Christ. He has already blessed you. Now go and follow him and live a life that is glorifying to him as we find how we do that in the scripture. And see, if you mix those things up, you miss it. And so what I want to do is what I'd like to do in the next few moments is just give you some indicatives that if you are in Christ, these are things that are true about you right now before we read the passage. It's the best illustration I could think of. So I'm going to read these. If you would like, you can say thanks be to God after each one vocally or in your heart. I don't care. Whatever is best for you. But hear these statements of fact and be reminded about, if you are in Christ, what is true about you right now. God chose you before the foundation of the world and he set his gracious love upon you. Thanks be to God. Before you were ever born, the Son entered into the world, lived the perfect life you could never live under God's holy law, died the death you deserved to die, and then walked out victorious from the grave over sin and death. While you were utterly lost and dead in your sin, God sought you out. While you were his enemy, Christ died for you. While you were utterly helpless to save yourself, God acted. At just the right time, according to his sovereign will, God regenerated your heart, called you to himself, showed you your sin, and then showed you your Savior. God then freely gave you the gifts of repentance, faith, and new obedience. You, me, we were the traitors that God took in, gave forgiveness to, and then adopted us into his family. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to you, and you now stand justified before a holy God. I'm only halfway through. Your sin debt has been paid in full, and now your life is fully hidden in Christ. He who began a good work in you continues to carry that work on to the day of completion as you are conformed to the image of Jesus by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God has given you his word. He's given you a church family. He's given you the great privilege of prayer. You now have a great high priest in heaven who is interceding for you before the Father. You have a good shepherd. He has promised to keep you firmly in his grasp and nothing, nothing will shake his resolve to hold you fast until the very end, even while you struggle with sin in this life. You now possess by faith an unfading inheritance in the heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken, and you have a reserved seat at the future banquet table of the Lamb. On that great day of judgment, you will be openly acknowledged by Christ, you will be fully acquitted, and you will enter into the eternal joy of heaven all by undeserved grace. And that's just a little bit of what we could go over. You think about that, and the list is just goes on and on and on and on. These statements of fact that if you are in Christ, these things are true about you right now. Right now. 
Everything I just said, it's already true because of Christ. So then, hearing those statements of fact, what do we do? How do we respond? What can we possibly do in light of all of those rich statements of fact? Let's find out. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Paul wrote, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these reminders, O Lord, of just how good and kind You are. We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would please come and move among us, O Lord. We pray that You would soften our hearts. Lord, help us to see more of you, and in the process, help us to understand ourselves better. We're thankful that you've not left us alone. And so, Father, please comfort and encourage our hearts this morning. We pray these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so we're thinking about the topic of gratitude or thankfulness. You know, that kind of comes in our guilt, grace, gratitude. And so we're asking a very similar question that we've been asking the past few weeks. The question we're going to ask this morning is, okay, so how does the gospel propel us to live a life of gratitude? How does the gospel propel us in that way, based on what we know, to live a life of gratitude? And we're going to look at two points this morning that are kind of like a sentence. So number one, a new status leads to, number two, a new way of living. So a new status and a new way of living. So our, our big point is going to be a new status leads to a new way of living. Let's look at that first point. Let's talk about this new status. This passage comes at the end of a long discussion by Paul where he lays out a long list of truth claims that apply to the Christians in Colossae because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. In many ways, he's doing what we did just a minute ago. He's just reminding them of what is true. And remember, passages like this come in context. This is a part of a letter, a larger letter. And some of these truth claims that Paul lists, it's kind of the, this opening flourish in Colossians, if you've ever read it. Colossians 1, 19-22. For in him, speaking of Christ... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's reminding them of these great truth claims. And so when Paul writes there in verse 12 where he says, put on then, it's in light of all of that. Maybe another way of saying that would be in light of all of these true things that I've just written, here's how to respond in a way that is honoring to Christ. 
Here's what Alastair Wilson said. He said, Paul is not calling for a moral self-help drive. Rather, he wants the life of Christ to be seen more distinctly in the Colossians' lives. But before he starts, one more true statement. Did you see what he says there in verse 12? He says, put on then. So he's calling them to respond, but then he gives them one more truth claim. He calls them God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul is talking about sovereign election here. And I know that that is a topic that makes some people squirm, but it shouldn't. Because it's absolutely comforting. And here's you think about this, and some people here may be prone to doubt their salvation. How do I know that I'm really a part of the elect? How do I know? How can I know? And you might be prone to doubt. And I would argue that if you're really concerned with that at the heart level, at all, it shows that the Holy Spirit's already at work. It's like people coming and saying, I'm so worried that I have maybe committed the unpardonable sin. If you are even worried about that at all, it shows that you've not committed the unpardonable sin. And you think, how could you possibly know this? Because lost people do not give one whip about that. They don't care. They openly mock God. They think the concept of sin is absolutely crazy. They could care less about anything religious. They're blind to their true condition before a holy God and look with pity and contempt upon those who they see as a bunch of weak-minded Foolish, religious nuts. Don't think that. Go hang out with some people that don't think like you. You'll find out very quickly. So I'm saying like we're called to go and make new friends and take the gospel and build relationships with people that aren't in our little holy huddle. It doesn't take long to realize if you get around some people that just hate God, they're not even thinking about that. And the very reason that, and here's the thing, okay, here's the, here's the amazing thing, and it took me a while to think about this and to wrestle with this. The very reason that you have any genuine heart affection for Christ this morning is because before the foundation of the world, God set his electing love upon you and called you his own. You would have no, no heart affection for Christ if not for that. You would still be lost and dead in your sin. It is the absolute picture of grace. I can't make you see it. I can't make you believe it. But all I can do is say, maybe this might actually be your only life raft. It's amazing when you think about it. You see, we love it in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth... It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. See, we love it in the Old Testament. But he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We should love it in the New Testament. We should love it right now. Again, I've said before, there's a statement of fact that drives the way that we respond to it. Here's another one. 1 John 4, 19. We love, why? Because he first loved us. One thing came before the other. And you think about just the sovereign will of the Lord changing hearts as he sees fit. I, used, I went on a campus and I had no idea what I was going to do. Can you imagine the comfort that that brings? The Lord has already gone ahead of you. He already has. You just show up and say, Lord, help me be faithful. That's an amazing thing about missions and evangelism. The Lord is going to change people's hearts as he sees fit. But you right now don't miss what you are being called 
You are being called holy. You are being called chosen and beloved. That's amazing when you think about it. I saw a few quotes this past week that I posted online. Maybe you see them. If you didn't, that's fine. And I thought they'd be helpful for you. Here's what J.I. Packer said. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. That's my story. I'm that traitor. And if you're here, that's your story too. Jerry Bridges. On your best days, you are never so good that you don't stand in need of God's grace. And on your worst days, you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Sinclair Ferguson. Please don't miss this one. Okay? My security as a Christian, my assurance, okay? My security as a Christian does not reside in the strength of my faith, but in the indestructibility of my Savior. Do not miss that. The assurance of your faith does not rest in how you feel about it. It rests in the fact that Jesus never changes. And when you wake up on days and you feel like life has just absolutely gone to pot, or you're just not feeling it, the, these things are still true. And they bolster you in the midst of that. Don't you see it? They're anchor points. They're anchor points to our Christian life. It's a good thing that our assurance and our confidence as a Christian doesn't reside in the strength of our own faith. It resides in the indestructibility of our king who sits on the throne right now. And so, Paul is talking about a new status for those who are united to Christ. They're called holy and beloved. If you're a Christian, this is true for you because of, because of the cross. You might be here and you don't feel worthy of God's love. How could God love a person like me? Here's the thing. Take heart. Take heart. Why? Because none of us are worthy. But he gives his love anyway. And rejoice in the Lord. Grateful that he set his love upon you. You're here and you're thinking that this part of the sermon doesn't apply to you. Lay down your pride and your self-sufficiency and run to Christ. We need Christ. Christ alone. Teacher said, "Lays thanks, but a humble mind is the soil out of which thanks naturally grow. I'm a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. Okay, what do we really deserve? We really deserve the wrath of God. That's what we really deserve." And so you think about if you're here and you are just clinging to your own self-salvation project, I would urge you to flee from it. Because what we really deserve is the wrath of God. And, the, and I want you to gaze upon the good news of the gospel and rejoice. Celebrate. Be thankful. This is a, this is a time of rejoicing. Look at how good God is. Look at how gracious and kind and loving He is. But again, I said it's not going to make sense until you hear the bad news first. That you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you have been alienated from a holy God. But through Christ, you have been declared righteous, and it is by grace you've been saved, through faith and not your works. And it's all of Christ. Now go live a life of gratitude because those things are true. Do you see how it works? It changes everything when you get it in the right order. Ligon Duncan said this, Jesus wasn't on the cross trying to get the Father to love us. 
He was on the cross because the Father has loved us with an everlasting love. Woo! Come on now. Let me read that one again. Here's what Ligon Duncan said. It's in the notes that got emailed out. Jesus wasn't on the cross trying to get the Father to love us. He was on the cross because the Father has loved us with an everlasting love. That was Jesus taking all the promises that God the Father had given with your name, and he was making it happen. Redemption accomplished, redemption applied, it is finished. It's a new status. You who were once far off, you are now his people. You who were once his enemies, now are his children by faith. You who were once unrighteous have been declared righteous through the righteousness of Christ that is credited and given to you. It changes everything. It's a new status. But it leads to a new way of living. Second point, shorter than the first. Look in verses 5 through 9. Paul talks about putting off the wardrobe that marked their old lives. He talks about putting on a wardrobe that marks their new identity as holy and beloved saints. So imagine as you hear this list, God is handing you a new layer to put on as you are clothed in Christ, as your life looks different. And the Greek tense is a present imperative for all of you, you know, English nerds out there. And it implies an ongoing action. So it's not just put it on once, it's keep putting it on. Keep putting it on. And these are five graces that we ask the Lord to give us daily. Take note of both the individual and the corporate nature of these. Look at verse, verses 11 through 14. <clears throat> or excuse me. Let's look at verses... Let's just start in verse 12. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay, that's the status. Compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, that's corporate, if one has a complaint against each other, still corporate, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, put, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here's what Kent Hughes said that I thought was really helpful. I'm going to quote him a couple of times. He's had some great quotes. He said, one other fact about this wardrobe, all the garments can be worn only in community with others in relationships. How tempting to think that these garments would be so much easier to wear if we did not have to wear them among people. How much easier to think about compassion than to do it. How much easier to be kind when we're away from mean people. It would, it would be far easier to put on humility and meekness if, if we were not being jostled by the proud and assertive. How much easier patience is in isolation. But that is not the way it works. Christians become better Christians in community. Isn't that good? So what is one of the main places where this type of community happens? Bearing with one another in love, forgiveness, all that kind of stuff. Where's, where's a place where that happens? You're sitting in it. In the church. In the body of believers. In the church family. And did you notice the top layer? Notice he's put this on, put this on, put this on. But above all, on top of all these, there's an overcoat and like a belt that cinches it together. Think about like the cozy bathrobe maybe with the built-in belt. You know, what do you put on on top of that? Did you notice the top layer? Love. It binds all together. It marks us out from the world. You see, the armor of God is for fighting the devil in the world, not other Christians. 
The wardrobe of the saints is for spending time with fellow believers. You don't need to put the armor on in here. Rest. As you know, Thanksgiving is one of those holidays where many people dread getting together with family and friends because it often leads to fighting and hurt feelings. Some of y'all might be bracing for impact right now. <laughs> and you ask, like, so what, what should mark our time together as a church family? If we're built together, what should mark our time? Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then whatever you do in love, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Aria White, who was a British preacher, observed regarding the fullness that these verses command. And he said, the surest sign that you're carrying a full bucket is wet feet. Anybody else tried to carry a full bucket? You know, it sloshes around. He said, that is, true to, it, that is true to our experience, is it not? Whenever we attempt to carry a full bucket to clean the floor or wash the car, we always get feet wet. And when our lives are full, they will overflow. It's just a matter of fact. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. That peace there is much more than just we're all getting along. That peace is a sense of wholeness, a sense of completeness. And the word for the Greek word that's translated rule there is actually a good way to describe that is to be the decider or almost to be the umpire. So let the peace of Christ umpire your hearts. And your heart there is something, it's not just feelings. The, when you see the word heart, oftentimes in the Bible, what it means is your guts, your very core, the very essence of who you are. So let the peace of Christ umpire your very guts. Maybe another way to say that. Again, here's where Kent Hughes was helpful. He said, the sense here is, let the peace of Christ be umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life. Let it decide what is right. Let it be your counselor. How much misery we would avoid if we permitted the peace of Christ to umpire in our hearts. How many words we would hold back if he were the arbiter in our lives. How many sleepless nights we would forego if we did that. How the church needs this too, since we are called to peace in one body. And so how do we respond to this peace of Christ that he has given us? He tells us right there, be thankful. Easier said than done, right? But that's, that's what we're called to do. Look in verse 16 as he goes on. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and spiritual songs. With what? Thankfulness in your heart to God. Now, we, we rally around the word of Christ. We rally around the scripture. We were taught. And even sometimes warned and corrected, right? And aren't you thankful to be a part of a community that has true scripture at the very center? Aren't you glad that we rally around the Bible? Aren't you thankful to have a community that sings psalms and hymns and spiritual songs instead of just political chants or empty platitudes? We rally around the word of Christ. This type of community is a gift of God's grace to you and me. And it's also one of the main instruments of us being conformed to the image of Christ, is it not? The church is one of the main instruments of sanctification in our life. Imagine your life up until this point without a church family. Although an imperfect one, right? We have all experienced 
against church hurt because the church is full of sinners, of whom I up front am the foremost. We've all experienced it. But I'd rather be nipped by a fellow sheep in the communion of the saints on their way to heaven than left alone to be led off a cliff to hell by the devil. Let me say that again. I would rather be nipped by a fellow sheep. And boy, have I been nipped. And so have you. I'd rather be nipped by a fellow sheep in the communion of saints on their way to heaven than left alone to be led off a cliff to hell by the devil. There is safety in the communion of the saints. There is safety in the body of Christ. This church family is a gift. It's a gift. Imagine your life if you didn't have a church family. I wouldn't know how to do it. I don't know how to live life apart from that. It'd be miserable. Look at verse 17. I mean, you think about, like, how in the world should we respond to this with thankfulness in our hearts for God, for his mercy? And again, if you're here and you don't know Christ, I love you. I'm so glad you're here. But you need to realize that unless you have Christ and you are le- unless you trust Christ, you are being led off of a cliff. Stop. Run to Christ. Rest in Christ. Flee to Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. You stand under the wrath of a holy God. If it's easier, I can smile while I say it. But that is your spiritual condition before a holy God. You're in big trouble. Flee to Christ. Run to Christ. Rest in Christ. We would love to help you process all of that. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, Kent Hughes, few exhortations in Scripture are more comprehensive than this one. Word or deed takes in everything in life. Deeds can be preaching, teaching, eating, exercising, driving, cleaning house, shopping, visiting, working, playing, basketball, soccer, tennis, fishing, even watching, everything. Our words are everything that passes our lips, even in unguarded moments. Everything we say or do is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I know that's easier said than done, is it not? And I get it. And it's something we need the Lord's help with. But I bet you've grown up reading this verse in the singular sense and have been overwhelmed by what it asks you to do. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. And you probably read that in the singular, right? And you think, how in the world could I possibly do that? But how would your understanding of this verse change if I told you that the Greek word for you, Paul, uses here actually better translated all y'all, which is the southern plural. So whatever all y'all do, it's plural. It's not singular. What if the church is just one big group project where we get to glorify God and enjoy him forever together? What if the church really is a gathered family of fellow adopted traitors whom God set before the foundation of the world? The Greek word for church is ekklesia. You know what that word means? The called out ones. That's what this is. We sit and we dwell upon the grace of the Lord. And we do this together. So whatever y'all do in word or in deed, do it for the glory of the Lord. We do that together. The future of those called by God's grace is a very hopeful one. Don't forget that. You may dread the earthly Thanksgiving table, but there's another table that's set for you that's even better. Let me give you a couple of verses. Revelation 19.9, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, The true words of God. 
Luke 13, 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Here's the thing as we tie this little mini-series off in a bow. The grace-shaped life is a life that knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that they don't deserve a seat at Christ's table. That's your guilt. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt I don't deserve it. But knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that a seat has been reserved for them. That is grace. That's grace. And that, and that the name card at the seat was written before the foundation of the world by a God who did absolutely everything to rescue them and to clean them up and to get them ready for the banquet. And we say thanks be to God in a life of gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. The gospel of God gives us much to be thankful for because it points not to us, it points to Jesus. And so the grace-shaped life is one that is led looking and trusting and resting in Christ. We think, Lord, I don't deserve this. Why would you be so gracious and kind and show your love towards a sinner like me? I don't deserve it. I haven't done anything to merit it. Why? But yet you have. You've been so gracious, and you sent your son into the world, O oh Father, and he volunteered for it to fulfill the law's demands that I could not and die the death that I deserved because this thing's true so that I could be set free in Christ forever and adopted into his family. And now, his banner over you is love. You've got a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb with your name written on it because that name was written in the Lamb book of life before you were ever born. Think about up until this point. We're so short-sighted, aren't we? We forget that there's been thousands and thousands and thousands of years that have preceded our lives, right? You do realize that God has been at work for millennia. Millennia. Up until this point that by his providence, he said, today's the day and I'm going to save you. That's it. And he called you and he rescued you. And he showed you Jesus and showed you your need and he showed you your Savior. And now by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you are now an inheritor of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. You live and dwell under the banner. It is finished. How in the world could we be grumpy when we think about that? But boy, we're good at it, aren't we? If you're a person who is just not happy unless you are unhappy, repent. Stop. Grumpiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You want something good to talk about around the Thanksgiving table? Why don't you start with what God has already done in your heart? Wretched traitor that you were, that I was, he brought you in, he cleaned you up, he gave you supper, and he adopted you into his family. And those adoption papers are kept in a fireproof safe in heaven, and nothing, nothing will snatch you from his hand. Nothing. That's good news. Right? Quit being grumpy. Come on. Rejoice in the Lord. He's good. He's kind. And he's gracious. Is he not? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness. Undeserved as it is, we are the traitors that you have brought in by grace alone 
through faith alone and Christ alone. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we just grind our teeth, all the ways that, Lord, we just complain. <laughs> Father, help us just to live a life of gratitude. When we see our guilt, when we see all the ways we've been delivered from that, Lord, we just stand in awe of who you are and what you've done, and we just say, thank you, Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, help us to love one another. May, may we have wet feet from the bucket of the overflow of your love and grace, and help us, Lord, to share that grace and love and kindness with those around us. Lord, in a, in a few days as we gather around the Thanksgiving table, may we be reminded, O oh Lord, that all that we have is from your hand. And you've been so gracious and so kind and so wonderful to us. We, like sheep, we had all gone astray. But the great shepherd of the sheep sought us out and called us by his grace. Lord, that is a wonderful thing to be thankful for. And our simple prayer is not to us, but to your name be the glory. And we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.